Employment discrimination is illegal and takes many forms. Religion. Race. Workers' compensation claims. Gender. Age. Disability. If you believe your employer has illegally fired or retaliated against you, contact us. Protecting your employment rights. Why we do what we do. The Law Offices of Stephen New. Yes, indeed, I am outside the Valley Forge Music Fair. We're in four short days. Four days from today, Saturday afternoon at 1 o'clock, the ECW presents Ultimate Jeopardy, the biggest show the ECW has presented to date. On that show, you'll see 911. You'll see the Bruce Brothers. You'll see Rock and Rebel go against J.T. Smith. Former friends collide as the Sandman takes on the Iron Man, Tommy Cairo. And as if that's not enough, two big steel cage main events, two steel cages. One event has Tommy Dreamer as he goes into the steel cage with the Superfly. Superfly, Jimmy Snuka. And as if that's not enough, the main event, Ultimate Jeopardy. Eight men in a steel cage, each carrying the weapon of their choice. On one side of the coin, Terry Funk and his team, Kevin Sullivan, the Tasmaniac, and the Road Warrior, Road Warrior Hawk, go up against the franchise, Shane Douglas, and his team of the Public Enemy and Mr. Hughes. Ultimate jeopardy. No one can afford to lose. If Shane Douglas loses, we'll shave his head right here in the Valley Forge Music Fair. If Kevin Sullivan and the Tasmaniac lose, they will split up as a tag team. If the Road Warrior Hawk loses, he will never be able to use the name Road Warrior again. If Terry Funk loses, he will lose the ECW heavyweight title to the man who defeats him. If Public Enemy loses this match, they will leave the ECW and give up their tag team titles, but they will leave the ECW forever. And if Mr. Hughes loses this match, his manager Jason will be locked in a steel cage for five minutes alone with Road Warrior Hawk, Terry Funk, Kevin Sullivan, and the Tasmaniac. It's ultimate jeopardy. It's the match no one can afford to lose. This is it tonight, man! Welcome to Franchise with Shane Douglas. Franchisees, welcome back to your favorite podcast and mine, Franchise with Shane Douglas. And I am here with the man, the myth, the legend, Mr. Shane Douglas, the franchise. How you doing, sir? In intensive care, coronavirus killing me. I know I'm just fucking ribbing because, <laughs> yeah. But let's not talk about the bullshit part aspect of that. Let's get into something. Something a little more interesting and something a little more real. Well, we do a podcast about pro wrestling, so I don't know if we can do that or not. <laughs> well, as real as it's going to get as far as the business is concerned today, I guess. So we've got all kinds of things to talk about, and we don't necessarily have to start with wrestling. We usually start with current events. Is anything crazy going on for you you in your life at right now at this time? No, everything totally normal other than, uh, every single thing you go to the grocery store for, you can't find. People looking at you like you're radioactive when you walk down the street out a mask on your face. Uh, the, the bizarre nature of all the lies we're getting in news today. But other than that, everything's perfectly normal. Right. Everything's fine other than that. Fucking Twilight Zone. 
It still is. I, I, do you see an end in sight? Uh, do you think that we're going? A lot of people are saying yeah. that we're going to wrap this thing up after the election. Is that? Are you on that yeah. uh, same train? Absolutely. November fourth, the, the, the pandemic will be gone. Or if President Trump would resign today, which he's not going to, but if he would, it'd be gone. You'd see some quick miracle, or the media immediately stop talking about it. I, I honestly, as somebody who's taught this subject and knows it fairly well. I'm astonished at what I'm watching in the media today. Just the blatant, outward lying, twisting, and manipulation of information it is astounding. When you flip through the channels, it used to be 2, 4, and 11. Back in the old, old days, we only had three networks. You could flip through and hear pretty much the same stuff on all three stations. Why? Because they were reporting facts. Facts don't change. Who, what, when, where, and why. Now you flip back and forth, and you'll get it's up, it's down, it's in between, it's backwards, it's 78% twisted, it's 36% moved. It's astonishing. And they cannot, the facts cannot be everything. Somebody's lying, and somebody's, they're either all lying, or some, most of them are lying, and one or two are telling the truth. But facts don't change. Two and two, like a professor of mine used to say, every time she'd get pissed off at me, Two and two equals four, Troy Martin. It doesn't matter if you're standing here or on Pluto. Two and two always equals four. You know, I, I, I don't know how to explain it any easier than that. It's pretty elemental. Every child in elementary school gets it. At least those that are having this crazy, insane math they're teaching today. But facts don't change. The light switches on, it's off. That's the two choices you have. But somehow in this twilight zone that we're living in, it can be everything and all things as long as it fits a narrative. And that's just simply not fact. It's simply not news. All right, so let's go into some wrestling because I want your opinion on something. Recently, Raw has brought a new feature onto Monday nights, which is called Raw Underground. Now, Raw Underground is a basically like a shoot fight segment of the of the show that is, I guess, choreographed shoot fights in an underground area with a ring with no ropes and strippers dancing in the corner. Uh, did, did you hear about this? Did you see anything about Raw Underground? I've heard about it. I haven't seen it because, again, I don't watch Raw. Um, but, look, I, 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 in a very rare moment, I'm going to give WWE some positive notes. Uh, I like that they're trying something different. I give them, you know, some, some points for that because, let's face it, that empty arena shit is the drizzling shits. I love the fact that they're attempting to put some heat on some heels, Seth Rollins and, and uh, Randy Orton. Heels with heat always draw. The formula has never failed. And so hopefully whoever's behind that, they continue to do it. Now we can parse it and talk about some of the things they're doing. Uh, it's pretty questionable and the way that they're doing it, but at least they're attempting to put heat on heels. I'll also give them positive points on the, the monitors in the uh, in the arena. It's trying something different. You're talking about you're talking about WWE Thunderdome right now. Thund that we were gonna. Yes, I was actually yeah. gonna mention that later when we talk about SummerSlam, but we can go ahead and talk about it now. I think WWE Thunderdome is a killer plan. Well, it, it is, but as I asked them, I have a podcast uh, when this idea first came up. Was how long was it before we saw somebody showing their ass or their balls on 
on television. Well, we haven't. I don't think we've gotten that. At least I haven't had anybody send me pictures of it. We've had KKK members in the audience. We've had Chris Benoit. Kid, Kenny Omega was in the audience. Uh, yeah, somebody said it doesn't look like Kenny Omega to me. Maybe it's just a bad picture, but you, you know that that's the part of it that's going to get you know continue to be, I think, more entertaining or at least equally entertaining. Well, Kenny uh, confirmed it. Watching to see, to see who the hell pops up. Yeah, well, Kenny confirmed it. It definitely was him. Well, that was him because again, I got the picture I had sent to me with the red circle around it. That that particular block was sort of blurred and the other ones were pretty clear i i get a kick at little people on them because you know like, there was one kid that said there was a mask okay so now you're on you're, you're presumably in your room by yourself i'm guessing and like unless you're afraid i'm pretty sure the cdc has confirmed that you can't get this like nobody listening to this podcast right now can get the covid through our transmission right that is true there was a mask on is you know just sort of bizarre to me, but comical at the same time. It's funnier and shit. It reminds me of old Mork and Mindy. <laughs> so a- entertaining in a bizarre world. So I got a question for you about AEW. They have to move all over the map now. We've seen them move to Saturday. We've seen them move to Thursday, and they're they're basically just uh, falling behind the uh, the NBA. Do you think that's going to have a major effect on their build for audiences? Well, let's face it. I mean, you know, again, the one thing about the franchise is I always am as real as I can possibly be. I didn't learn the finer points of attack or beating around the bush when I was a kid. They've been on the air coming up very soon on the year. They've shown no real propensity for any kind of lasting growth to that show. Uh, they launched at 1.4 million, fell to 700,000 week number two, and they've by and large been around that. Now, the last two weeks, my understanding is, is that they've been unopposed. You know, they've seen a slight bump, but not really uh, anything that you, know, that you haven't seen before. They, they're, they're up till now, the paradigm is they'll go up 50, 60, 70, 80,000. They'll drop 50, 60, 70, 80,000. But when you look at the block for both NXT and AEW on Wednesday nights, when they are running head-to-head, and there aren't all these playoffs that are going on, not going on, uh, being delayed, whatever. The, the the number is around 1.4 million people that are watching the two shows. Undoubtedly, some of that 1.4 million are people that are flipping back and forth. Uh, you know, I'd love to really know what the basic block is, uh, how many total. And from the numbers we're seeing, it looks like a 1.4 million block that moves a little this way to AEW, moves a little that way to NXT, but it's 1.4 million people, and they've not shown any kind of, either of them, propensity to, to, to gain that audience, which is problematic in television. Did you see that they brought back fans this week? Oh, did they? Good. So, you know, it's uh, that hopefully will help, but the empty arena stuff, just not a fan of. Well, they said they said they were running at 10%, but you could see people, and you could and you could actually hear people. I know when Jericho came out, you, you know, he used to get the – response of everybody singing his theme music well he actually got that this week again and it was it was great to to see that type of fan interaction that we haven't seen in so long absolutely i mean professional sports in general but specifically professional wrestling is a fan interactive thing you know so when you take that out of it you know suddenly like if you in soap operas if you take all the female actresses out 
sort of changes the look and feel of it. If you take comedians out of comedies, sort sort of takes the you know the, the feel out of the show. You know, if, if it's only ten percent they can do, ramp up the sound in the building, pull them in as tight as you can. But yeah, the empty arena stuff is just drizzling shits. But my question to it all is, why has it taken five months to come up with this stuff? Thunderdome, you know, few people in the building, whatever. Right. Uh, you know, I think the fans would have been forgiving if, you know, for the first three or four weeks they did that because they were trying to feel the way. Remember when I said way back at the beginning of this, we are only limited by what we can create in our head. And so my question to Mr. Khan would have been, and to Vince McMahon, is where's your creative? Is this what they're giving you? Because it ain't very creative. Well, we are going to talk about SummerSlam at the end of the show today, and we will go over some of the uh, the outcomes of some of the matches and get your opinion on those. But before I want, before we talk about our, our topic for today, I would like to mention the PWI 500. They named John Moxley as the number one rated wrestler in the uh, in the world. What do you think about that? Wow. Well, it's, I mean, you know, I, I think it speaks about the industry where it sits right now. But he did get a lot of push. From leaving, you know, sort of like back in the 90s when the NWO popped up in uh, WCW. I don't think quite to that degree, obviously. But there was, you know, a lot of talk about that. But, you know, that PWI 500 is something that's always subjective, right? I mean, you know, ten people can look at it and get ten different things out of it. Nine disagree, one agrees, depending on whoever you put up there. But, you know, I think when you start looking at it, like, you know, there's, a, again, in the eye of the field over whoever's watching it but moxley certainly made a name for himself by becoming outspoken when he left wwe as opposed to the let's not burn that bridge because we may have to go back routine which i abhor you know we're all men and women here you know we all have our own professional thoughts and our fans have some level of expectation from what we talk about and so if you're going to go out there imagine a world with a shane douglas who had no opinions wow <laughs> some might love it, and I think some might really dislike it. You know, to me, I've earned my right to speak my piece in this business because I've earned my right in this business. I've earned my way in this business. I think John Moxley has. So I love that when he left there, he didn't just proverbially kiss Vince McMahon's ass as so many do for fear that they may have to go back. And that's what I love about there being another company, you know, that... When you have, well, I don't care what it is, you know, you go back to the production of cars in the old Soviet Union, right? You could have whatever you want in whatever color you want, as long as it was one particular car they made and it was black. But other than that, you could have any choice you wanted. <laughs> um, you know, and, and that's the problem when you have one company. Then, you know, you're, you're less likely to be able to speak your mind. The boys inherently make less money. Does anybody here believe that Vince McMahon would be paying what he's paying to his boys right now if it weren't for AEW or that Tony Khan would be paying if there wasn't a WWE? Right. You know, so I've seen the industry when there's been full-blown competition, and it was phenomenal for the fans because they got an incredible product, choice of whatever product they wanted. The boys made it, and everybody knows when I say the boys, I mean the wrestlers, made a ton more money because there was competition. And the networks won because the ratings were through the roof. So, you know, I, so that's the one really big positive I see from having another company like AEW and, and others. You know, so everybody wins. I, I think the problem to wrap this whole t tangent up is that all of those 
companies, alternative companies, are giving the same exact vanilla or, or slightly variations of vanilla. Go back to ECW, and I hate to keep on referencing back to that, but it is my point of reference. When you turned on ECW in the 1990s and compared it to WCW or WWF, that wasn't just a little variation of French vanilla to vanilla bean. It was dichotomously different. And and that the fans that like that had that option. How we're, we're, we're seeing right now with all these companies in existence and pushing, how we're seeing all pretty much the same stuff is, is really bizarre to me because anybody that's in business knows, again, if you're selling cards, if, if you across the street are selling a whole shitload of red cars, maybe I'll try blue. But, you know, it, it, it just you've got to vary the products. You've got to give the fans a choice of A, B, C. Otherwise, you're not going to be able to pull them back and forth. Well, because we're talking about the BAWI 500, I kind of want to give our listeners a uh, inside track on what the uh, PWI 500 looks like at the very top here. We got number one, John Moxley. Number two, Adam Cole, which I thought was pretty interesting. Number three, Chris Jericho. Number four, Drew McIntyre. It's kind of crazy that the WWE World Champion comes in number four here when usually the yeah. WWE Champion is one or two. Yeah, no doubt. I mean, that's... That shows you, I think, what the industry en masse is, is saying. It's, and we're seeing it in the ratings, right? I mean, you see the ratings that WWE is getting. I, I was talking to somebody earlier this week and said, you know, if you'd have told me five years ago that WWE would be doing 1.6 million viewers, I'd have laughed at you because I honestly believe that their core base audience, if they had a broom versus a mop, would be about 5 million fans. Well, they broke through that some years ago, and every subsequent year for the last 20-plus years have shown lower ratings than they did the previous year. We'll see at the end of this year if that holds true. And To date, it looks, unless they see one hell of a rebound, it looks like that, that paradigm's going to hold. All right, well, today we are talking about Ultimate Jeopardy 1994. Building up to this event, you had just dubbed yourself the franchise and picked up the legendary Sherry Martell as your manager. What was it like working with Sherry? Oh, my God, Sherry was... <laughs> I mean, what can you say, right, about someone like Sherry Martell? First of all, she was a sweetheart. Nothing at all like the character she played on television. She had a heart of gold. And, and I know you hear that so often, but from me, you'll hear, you, you hear the pretty much unvarnished truth. If somebody's an asshole, I'll tell you they're an asshole, like me. But Sherry was a sweetheart and so fucking amazing at what she did that, you know, she knew instinctively as a manager, which is a different role for her, you know, she knew when a rest spot was coming in the match because she'd been in the matches. So she knew when it was her time to maybe ramp up a little bit of activity on ringside to work with Sherry Martella. You know, at that point, God, she had been up with Randy Savage and uh, Shawn Michaels and, and, and an unbelievably illustrious career of her own. It sort of compensated for me that calmed my fears, you know, of having just recently become a heel, still learning my way around being a heel. And now, you know, I've got Sherry Martell at ringside. And we would often talk after the matches, before the matches. She, you know, she gave me some really great input. But after the matches, she would dissect stuff. So it, she was like a, having a professor alongside for the trip of creating that franchise character. And a lot of what you would see later emanate from the franchise character would relate back right to Sherry Martell 
thing with me in those early months. You know, to get my information for Ultimate Jeopardy, I, I got to go back and watch some hardcore TV, which I always love to do. And I noticed that on one of the episodes building up to this event, you were asked for a comment, and you didn't have one on Ultimate Jeopardy 1994. Um, when on earth have you not had a comment? Uh, my question is, what was the real reason you didn't comment on this show before it? Well, because at that point, Paul, and, and this is sketchy in my memory, but we didn't know exactly what we were going to be doing at it. Um, we, you know, I, I don't, I, Paul never really talked in depth to me about it, but I do recall conversations that he wasn't sure if the belt was still going to be on Terry, if they were going to take it off of Terry, you know, how they would do it to get to that point or who was going to even be in the match. So it was really difficult for me to cut a promo and mention all the people that were going to be in the match because we didn't really know. Paul was still in the process of putting that together. So it gave sort of a smug response from the, from the smug asshole character, right? Uh, no comment, which sort of leaves it open-ended for the fan and the viewer to decide. On the go-home edition of Hardcore TV before Ultimate Jeopardy, you faced off against Pat Tanaka. Now, it's a pretty good match, too, and Tanaka doesn't come up very often, so what can you tell me about Pat? Oh, another great guy. Uh, you know, very, very, very good in the ring. You know, so he knew how to play his character well. And, and you know, keep in mind, he'd been a heel for a good bit of his career. So in ECW, he's working with the heel character. But he'd also been a babyface in his career and, and was damn good at that. So he could seamlessly float between those two. Working with him was phenomenal, right? Because, hey, we knew each other in for, I, I don't know, 10, 15 years at that point, traveled together, you know, roomed together, did all the stuff that boys on the road do. You know, it, it's very, very comfortable. And for the wrestlers that are listening, they understand what I'm talking about. When you're in the ring with somebody that you know you can trust, that you know is safe, that you know how that they know how to play their role, then at that point, the creative juices are a little bit able to flow more freely because you're not worried about this guy going to punch me in the mouth, kick my teeth out, hit me in the chair when I'm not looking. You know, and so you're able to like sort of throw that other esoteric stuff off to the side and focus more on the match. And, and Pat Tanaka was as proficient in the ring as anybody had been in the ring with. Now, watching this episode, I was reminded of the existence of Matty in the house. What an annoying yep. personality he was. Sure, sure, he was probably a great guy, but from a fan's perspective, yep. I am not sure he was the best host for hardcore TV. Well, you know, again, these are the fledgling years of ECW, right, where we were trying to find that right chemistry balance. And for Joey Styles, the commentator, there were some things that he really couldn't, you know, or wouldn't talk about. And so you had to give somebody else to, to give that other, the other side of the coin. Uh, Matty was, was uh, good friends with Paul Heyman. I'm not sure what his background was uh, as far as professionally or, or before ECW, but he was a great guy to be around and, you know, would often you know, sort of try to put that heel aspect to the to, to what we were watching on TV. Joey Styles was delivering. Remember what I said earlier about fake news? Joey Styles was never giving opinion. Joey Styles was telling me what was going on on the screen so a blind man could listen and pretty closely follow along because Joey was given the A, B, C, D, E, F, G of what was happening in the match and occasionally like an opinionated point of view on it. Maddie was able to more round that out and, and sort of juxtapose, I guess what you would say, the babyface commentator 
uh, by giving it a little more texture from the from the dark side, if you will. Ultimate Jeopardy 1994 took place March 26, 1994, in Devon, Pennsylvania, in front of 700 ECW fans. This event takes place at the Valley Forge Music Fair. How did that work, and how did that come about? Well, I that would have been on Paul. This was before any of it. Paul or Todd, I should say. This was before most of us were, were wearing all those other multiple hats. We did where Taz was doing merchandising, Tommy was doing the warehouse and uh, getting orders out. Me and Bubba were well, Bubba would come a little bit later, but I, I was starting to, to promote for ECW. You know, so this is before that all those you know other hats came in. The, the one thing that stands out about that match that night or that that event that night was that I had left uh, uh, Pittsburgh. And the flight was delayed. I can't remember if it was on the ground or in the air, but when we landed, my driver picked me up. Like literally, like 30 minutes to make it from the Philadelphia airport to the building, and which was about 45 minutes away. The show had already started. I had to change into my gear on the plane. So I went. I mean, you know, imagine you're sitting on a plane. Somebody walks out of first class, goes back to the back bathroom, and so you know, in, in real clothes. And then comes walking back in wrestling boots and tights and and, and t shirts. <laughs> uh, and those bathrooms, as you know, are small to begin with. They're not exactly easy to get into wrestling gear in those bathrooms. But we landed, and my driver just took off a bat out of hell to get me there. When I pulled up to the back of the building, Paul was waiting. It was a weapons match, uh, and anybody could take whatever they wanted in the ring. Well, because I got there late, every single thing in the building that could be used was used. There was nothing laying around that I could use as a weapon, and I was the last entrant into the match. So I'm outside trying to break a limb off one of the trees out in back of the building, and uh, my driver came in and said, there's an ashtray. So, you know, it was like one of those canister ashtrays that I thought was made of steel, and, you know, you took the, the ashtray, like the, the bowl part off the top, it was like a cylinder. So I grabbed it, my music's playing, I go through the curtain, I walked through you know, up into the to the uh, to the cage, and Kevin Sullivan was the first to feed me, and I, so I'm expecting to hit him over the head like with a steel can sort of response. <laughs> when I hit him over the head, you know, I swung it pretty hard as you do with a steel can, and when I hit him here, the, the the cylinder was made of fiberglass, and all you heard was just like dull thunk, <laughs> and Kevin like dripped to his knees. And, you know, so I, I just threw that away. I you know, didn't want to use that on anybody else. And that was what began me into the match. So it was really hectic getting there. No time to think about it. But, you know, the match was already started. They were already going into it. Uh, other than the finish of the match was given to me. I think Todd gave me the finish of the match, if I'm, if I'm remembering correctly. Well, we are not even to the main event yet. We are at our first match, and our first match of the night was Crash the Destroyer versus Pitbull number one. Crash gets the victory here, and Crash went on to become Hugh Morris, a.k.a. Bill DeMond. Yep. So I had forgot. Yeah. I forgot he was even in ECW. Bill was always a great guy. I mean, I always got along great with Bill, and, and he was a hell of a hand. You know, and always a big, thick guy like we, like we all know, uh, you know, Bill DeMont to be. But he was very young then, as I seemed. You know, obviously going back to the 94, was there working his ass off, was always very quiet over, you know, over off the side, getting dressed, that kind of thing. But uh, when he'd get in the ring, he always had that moonsault that he'd pull out, you know, working, always working hard. Uh, but he was there for like a blink of an eye. It was like 
couple years later when I would see him in WCW, he'd had a different haircut and, you know, different, you know, you meet guys in our business that are built like that pretty often, right? So it's not like somebody stands out because they're a big, thick guy because pretty much everybody in wrestling is a big, thick guy. So, you know, and I kept hearing uh, Hugh Morris, Hugh Morris, Hugh Morris. It, you know, obviously rang no bell to me. And it took me some time to, to put together that that was the same guy that I used to see at DCW Arena all the time. But, you know, good guy, uh, good hand, and, you know, I'm happy to see that DCW was able to get him started in his career. Next up, 911 defeats Hack Myers, which I'm sure was a squash match. Why do you think neither of these guys did much outside of ECW? Well, I, I know in 911's case, uh, Al, Big Al, again, you're going to hear me say this over and over about ECW guys, right? Because it really was the fraternity that I always talk about. Uh, Al was a great guy, but a big, big, I just a huge guy, right? Uh, abnormally big even for you know professional wrestling. But he was focused locally. He had owned a farm locally. I just saw Al about a year ago. Bill looks pretty much the same. He since has gotten involved in like youth causes, like kids in need, and he brings them out to his farm. Uh, has them working on the horses, get a good hard day's work in, ride the horses, you know, learn some self-respect and work ethic. You know, I think that started sometime back around then. In other words, I wasn't one of the guys that wanted to go on the road, which is a really, really hard life. Hack uh, Myers kicked around the business a little bit and, you know, had his opportunities in a few places, but uh, never got his, uh, like a big break, as, as you'd say, in the business, and just passed away a couple of years ago, unfortunately, from brain cancer. You know, definitely one of the guys, one of the founders of ECW that helped get it off the ground. One other point about 911 was, you know, Paul was able to utilize him in a way that could really lessen his weaknesses and keep focused on just what you see when you look at the guy. You know, the chokes, you know, very limited in the ring. And by doing that, Paul was able to negate, you know, those neg those, those negatives that would have popped up if you put him in a long match. And how many times have we seen that in wrestling, right? You get some guy, you know, El Gigante and how many others of these big guys that, you know, once exposed on camera for any length of time, you can start to see right through. And, you know, again, back to Paul's brilliance, the brilliance of simplicity, right? You're not going to get out and go out there and do head scissors or chain wrestling, but he can do that very well. But it also gives, you know, the, you know, gives the promotion sort of an exclamation point. Okay, something's going on, whatever it is, whatever big long storyline that's been going on, you can insert out there and get an exclamation point if you needed to. So it was a brilliant career for ECW, albeit a simple one. So up next, we see the Rockin' Rebel, a gimmick that would not fare well in 2020. Take on champion JT Smith for the ECW TV Championship. JT Smith wasn't bad at all. Every run he ever had was with ECW after joining. Why, why did JT Smith never go anywhere else? Good question. Uh, yeah, JT was a, a good hand uh, and was, you know, in the process of learning. He'd only trained, at, I believe, at Todd uh, Gordon's school. And, you know, I think he was in the same class as Francine and them. So hadn't been around long, but, you know, you can see clearly he had some chops, right? But he was also a very intelligent guy. And I believe uh, the last I'd heard that he was a school teacher in Virginia, you know, so, you know, I think he just made the assessment at the time for his, you know, for him personally, that it would probably be better for him to 
you know, leave the industry and go at, you know, access his education professionally, as opposed to, you know, trying to get your foot in the door. It's very much like the music industry, right? A lot of kids out there that play guitar, drums and instruments uh, and try their hand at music. And that really small percentage that makes it, and I, I'm guessing, because I haven't spoken to JT in years, but I'm guessing that with JT, you know, he weighed out those options and thought that he'd be better off to pursue his education as opposed to uh, trying his hand at wrestling. But a great guy and a good hand in the ring. And, you know, he, when he started, you know, doing the thing where he would sing, you know, fly me to the moon, baby, sugar, and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, it was just so comical and, and 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 really related well to the audience. And remember, a lot of the ECW audience that was in that arena, you know, they they would be around the building for most of the day, so they would get to know the characters, or at the hotel afterwards, so they'd get to know the characters, uh, or, or the people playing the characters. And you know, JT was such a, an easygoing, cool guy that that character just bled through. Well, it's a good thing the Rockin' Rebel wasn't important enough to get a statue because if he had one, that shit would be coming down right now. We'd have to put it in Jimmy Boogie Woogie's museum in Virginia. <laughs> you know, I, Rebel was a good guy. Uh, you know, I, again, like I said earlier, you're going to keep hearing that over and over again. But he was uh, a real, real, real high strung. B, you know, that high str- that high str- strung part that I just uh, aspect that I just mentioned leads like for some people to take themselves too seriously and uh, before anyone says well the franchise took himself seriously I took myself seriously as a character in front of the camera <laughs> but anybody will tell you like Francine in the in the uh, trunk with me when we had to be snuck in and out of the buildings was I was the biggest goofball in the dressing room or one of them you know so but with the rebel uh, the, the one story that, I, that always sticks out to me about him was we had a show very early on. This is at around the time Paul had taken over and uh, Eddie had left, working in a lot of really odd buildings, uh, you know, you know, different places. We were at the boardwalk in New Jersey. Paul was having a battle royal. It was a battle royal listed, right? And I forget who was going over in the battle royal. I can't remember the finish of the match. What was so hilarious about the match was that Paul had told Rebel that he was going over, and he wasn't. So, told all the guys, you know, all of us, pulled us aside and said, you know, whatever you do, to, you know, just get him out of the ring. So, we all go to the ring. You know, everybody in the ring smartened up except Rebel. And every time somebody starts trying to throw him out, dude, he fought like a fucking lion to not leave that ring. And he kept yelling, I'm supposed to win. I'm supposed to win. I'm supposed to win. And when he finally got dumped out of the ring, I forget even who dumped him out. I'm sure it's on camera somewhere. Somebody has it out on YouTube. He hits the, hits the floor, and like a little kid, he like jumps up and down and stomps his feet and his hands down to his side, and he's so pissed off because he thought he was supposed to win. Just, you know, one of those things that, like, you know, for those of us in the business, you know, funny because, uh, you know, a harmless, innocuous rib, but one that he took obviously very seriously. But yeah, I mean, what happened this, what was it last year? You know, shocking when I heard it. You know, it's, you know, when you get to the point, see, I, I'm going to go a step further. I probably get some heat for saying this. What he did was horrible, right? Kills his, his wife or girlfriend. Uh, were they married? Well, I didn't know anything about this. I just thought, no, tell me what this guy did. I have no idea. I don't even know. I didn't even know this guy existed until I, I checked this pay-per-view out. Yeah, he um, he was one of the very first guys in, in Eastern Championship Wrestling, right? 
And, you know, Paul was doing this slow, steady, you know, getting rid of this guy and bringing in a Chris Benoit, getting rid of this person and bringing in a Dean Malenko or an Eddie Guerrero or Mysterio, Conan, slowly building, you know, the, uh, the team as it were. Last year, I lose track of time. It was in the last year or two, something happened and he went nutso and, and, and shot and killed his wife or his girlfriend, then shot and killed himself. And there were young kids in the house, Jeez. inside the house when this happened. So, you know, like, you know, your first thought is, my God, there's two dead bodies laying there and there's children in the house. But there's also now a loaded gun laying there and children in the house. You know, <laughs> so it really fucked up on a whole lot of levels. But, you know, and this is the part that's going to get me heat, I'm sure. I always take it a step further and think to myself, like, what could have possibly been going on in his life? that would have prompted something that horrific, you know, and yeah. that people get to the point where, you know, like I'd like to think that if I ever came, came close to getting to something that, that dire, that I'd reach out to a friend, a buddy, a, a, you know, a psychiatrist, something before I would resort to something like that. But, you know, it's just, I, I guess each of us never knows what would happen if we found ourselves in similar circumstances. What's odd about it, is I've heard none of that side of the story. I've heard zilch about what led up to this, you know, what set him off, you know, so you're sort of left to speculate, but I just feel bad that, you know, a, a friend from a previous life didn't feel that he had anybody else he could reach out to and, and, and end up resorting to, to doing something that horrific. Yeah, that's crazy. I didn't even know that about the guy. Really? Yeah, I thought everybody and you call yourself a wrestling fan well i guess i just uh you know i, I didn't follow the career of dixie dynamite either so <laughs> all right on the note of unexpected murder suicides from confederate wrestlers i think it's time to take a small break we'll be right back on franchised after this since 2001 drug companies dumped a billion opioid pills in west virginia causing over 3,000 overdose deaths and thousands of babies born addicted by no fault of their own. I'm attorney Stephen New. If you're the grandparent or guardian of a child born with neonatal abstinence syndrome, call me. I'll help you seek just compensation. Call the law offices of Stephen P. New at 1-844-BAD-PILLS before time runs out. Are you ready to become a resident of the House of Kayfabe? This isn't a podcast. This is an unfiltered, unadulterated, uncensored presentation of the thoughts and brain candy of some of the world's most dedicated and passionate spectators of the sport of kings. This is not a podcast. This is a tribe of devoted superfans that have crashed through the barricades, torn down barriers, and broken through the fourth wall. This is not a podcast. This is a secret society of elite fans from all over the globe. And guess what? It isn't a secret anymore. We want you to join us. This is not a podcast. September 9th, 2020. In the midst of plague and civil unrest, out of the smoke and rising from the ashes, like some type of wrestling phoenix, comes a house for you, a house for me, 
a house for every wrestling fan that eats, breathes, and lives for combat sports of the pro wrestling variety. This is not a podcast. This is a creative think tank full of people who have given way too much of their lives to professional wrestling to not be getting a paycheck. This show is for the Smarks, by the Smarks. This is not just a podcast. This is the house that Kayfabe built. Yeah, okay, like I was saying, September 9th, 2020, House of Kayfabe comes to your favorite podcast platform. Okay, it's a fucking podcast. But if you love professional wrestling, in-depth interviews, knowledgeable commentary, rude comedy, awesome contests, and interactive opportunities, then get ready, because ladies and gentlemen, this is the House of Kayfabe. This right here is the future of wrestling. You people have been led to believe that mediocrity is excellence. Uh-uh. I'm gonna reach out right now. I want you at home to know my hand is touching your hand for this gathering of the biggest body of people in this country, in this universe, all over the world now. You know that I'm the cream of the crop. Let me remind you that this is the house Similar to the parts I know what you say. Oops, I'm breaking the fourth wall. What's K-Fabe? What? The House of K-Fabe with Brian Reznor and Stephen New. That's K-Fabe. See you, fourth wall! Hey, wait one second here. A little birdie flew in my ear and told me that my podcast partner on franchise, Brian Reznor, has got another podcast? Who gave you permission for that? Stephen P. New? Cafe K-Fabe? What the hell, Brian? I might just have to give you a black and gold slip. <laughs> Hello, I'm Ricky Morton and fans, but I got something to tell you. Got a brand new podcast coming out called oh, House of Kayfabe. Don't miss it. It's going to be great. September 9th, House of Kayfabe comes to all major podcast platforms. House of Kayfabe, hosted by Stephen P. New and Brian Reznor, featuring Rich Quick, Eli Brazil, Derek Jones, Matt Mullins, and more. Episode 1 will set the pace and feature an exclusive deep dive interview with Heath Slater. Hey, I'm not Slater. How about we just stick to Heath? Sorry, an exclusive interview with Heath. Not my name. You got much impact. What's he doing here? Oh! House of Kayfabe. Not to be braggadocious. Not to show off. Well, lo and behold, did you think it wasn't going to happen? Did you think the greatest mind in this sport would walk out here and blow smoke? Well, if you did, you were wrong. We really don't know what we're dealing with here, man. It's all right. Because we just might blow the whole planet up, you know. I take it to the
House of Kayfabe with Brian Reznor and Stephen Newton. This has been a product of Superior Radio Network. That was good. Hello, Rich Quick here with another quick moment in Shane Douglas history. Now the date was March 26, 1994, and ECW brings us Ultimate Jeopardy, yeah. Now it was a simpler time in 1994. Before there was Extreme, we had Eastern Championship Wrestling. It was a simpler time when all you had to do to win a match was suffocate an old man with a plastic bag, you know. The good old days. Well, that's exactly what happened. And Shane Douglas is now your two-time ECW champion. Yes, he he did almost murder Terry Funk, but but he didn't. So it's cool, right? Yeah. See, so that got me thinking. Who do you identify with in this scenario? I mean, are you Shane? Do you start each day by suffocating life's problems and moving forward to be the champion that you are? Or are you Terry Funk and feel like no matter what you do, life has a plastic bag over your head? Well, me personally, I've been in a little bit of a funk. But you know what? You know what? Writing this, okay, has inspired me to change all that. And it can inspire you too. See, we can get better. Because Terry Funk may have lost, but he never gives up. I mean, he went on to retire like 47 times after this. So if he can keep going, so can we. So until next time, this has been Rich Quick with another quick moment in Shane Douglas history. So next up, Ron and Don Bruise are, are going to destroy Bad Company, Paul Diamond, and Pat Tanaka for eight straight minutes. The Harris Brothers always wrestle like organized chaos. I feel like they, they like they work a match the same way they would demolish a house. Yeah, yeah, that's what I love. Ronnie and Donnie are two great guys also, right? I've known them for years, both great guys. When they first came in, they had tattoos that, you know, had the, 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 the Kiss S's on it. I, I, and I don't know if it was a KISS logo, uh, if it was something related to Sturm Staffel, the SS, what it was. But they had to cover those up and get, you know, get the artwork covered up. Um, but their in-ring work was, to me, like for two big guys, they were, they were to me, very reminiscent of King Kong uh, Brody, but had a little more to them, right? I mean, like they were able to get in and do stuff. And because they were identical twins... You know, we all started, all the boys call them Rondon, each of them, because you don't know which one it is. But, you know, great guys in the back, you know. So, again, like what I said about Pat Tanaka earlier, you know, you, you felt completely these are these guys that looked like they were creaming you in the ring because they were so darn good at what they did and professional and, and, and great to get along with. But as a tag team, that, that they're one of the teams that I always think to myself, especially when we go back into that time frame of the 90s, like why they didn't get shot to the moon, right? Because they they had the look, they had the uh, the gift of gab, they had the ability in the ring, and that identical twin stuff. Is so many ways you can play off of that. 
But yeah, they uh, they were a very proficient tag team, very much underappreciated and underutilized. Would you know later have some some stuff to do with them in, in, in ECW, uh, and they would both go to work uh, later for uh, TNA. And, and again, I don't know which one. I, I've always called each of them Ron Don. I think they worked. Never I think they both worked there. Team. I think they both worked there. Yeah, but the other, the other one went to work for uh, what was that country? Savoy Brown. Oh. Um, you know, did security with it. Was that Ronnie? Um, I'm not sure. Yeah, one of them, one of them did, and one of them stayed with TNA, uh, and then sort of came back towards uh, towards the tail end. But honestly, like when you when you didn't see them together. You didn't know which one you were talking to, and like even like when when uh, I, I think it was Ronnie. Oh God! Before I say, it, I'm going to screw it up. I know it. Even in my head, I can't separate them because they were so not just only identical, but they both acted exactly the same. You know, so you really could never tell which one you were talking to. They could have pulled off on anybody that they wanted. They could have gone to you know for a job and said, "Yeah, I'm, I'm done," and it'd be. Ron and vice versa. When I was like 11 years old, my six-year-old brother and I were five rows back from ringside sitting on the end of the row watching the newcomers, the Bruise Brothers, take on the Rock and Roll Express. They looked like giants to us, and we didn't know how Ricky and Robert were going to pull this off. But one of the Harris brothers ripped the chair out from under my little brother in the crowd just to blast Ricky Morton right right beside both of us. And at the moment, there yeah. was absolutely no doubt in my mind. Wrestling was 100% real, and all my uncles were just assholes. Isn't it? <laughs> that's, I, I, that's what I thought yeah, at but, that time. Yeah, but, but again, because those two, I mean, again, they're big guys, like 6'6", six, 6'5", six, 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 I mean, they're, you know, I've never measured them, but I mean, they're both really big guys. They were both put together well in great shape. And then the identical aspect of them, when they came out, especially with the five, six-year-old kids, right, they must have looked like Andre the Giants. They and, were huge to you us. Know, when, yeah, and, and I can tell you, when they would give you chair shots like that, light as a feather. They, they were pros through and through, both of them. But, again, that's why I keep going back to every time I think about these guys, we don't talk about them often because, like, you know, you always sort of gravitate, like, to the, to the larger names in the business. But when, when you talk about tag team wrestling, it was my belief that Ron and Don were headed for stratosphere, right, because uh, they, they had everything. They had, had literally everything you would need to make it in the business, including the believability factor, right? And, and your, your story just, you know, underscores that. But, you know, unfortunately, they, they would sort of fall by the wayside. And, 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 and I don't know what the backstory to that is. Maybe they had reasons to leave the business or whatever. But, you know, I always thought they were going to end up, you know, like massive stars in the business because they had all that. Yeah, like the next Legion of Doom or something. You know, they just, they just felt that way. Yeah, absolutely did. So our next match at Ultimate Jeopardy is Tommy Caro versus the Sandman. I had no idea who Tommy Caro was. Apparently, this feud is what he is most famous for. Got any good Tommy Caro stories? Car- K- K- is it Caro? Yeah, Caro. Uh, uh, Cairo. Cairo. Uh, Cairo uh, is the way they pronounce it, like the uh, capital of Egypt. But they would. Uh, he was a local guy. Uh, when I say local to Philadelphia, somewhere like in the New Jersey, west, eastern Pennsylvania uh, area, um, and was one of those guys that was there at the very beginning when, when Todd first bought Eastern Championship Wrestling. And so, you know, in hindsight, I don't know what came first, the chicken or the egg. Like, did Paul try to utilize some of these guys and then decide that he had to, you know, upcharge the, uh, you know, uh, strengthen the, the roster? Tommy Cairo was one of those guys that, you know, was destined to be gone from ECW. 
a good guy, you know, you know, everybody worked hard. Um, but you know, when you look at ECW now, when you think of ECW as the entity that you think of it, those guys that were there early on, you know, the Sal Belomos and, and the Tommy Caros and, and, and those guys, you don't really, they don't pop up in your head as much. And, and like for you, someone's followed ECW pretty closely, you know, never having heard of them. That's why, because when ECW hit the map, it was once Paul had strengthened that roster and brought in all those, you know, luchadors for the first time to America, something Americans had never seen, and all these other names that people either had never heard of or only heard of through the sheets, like Sabu in Japan, Benoit as the Pegasus kid, Shane Douglas as the middle of the card, white meat babyface, you know, and, and suddenly there they all are in this one place and putting on a pretty damn good uh, product. But, uh, Tommy Cairo was one of those those early, early guys. He was there before I was there. The very early days of Eastern Championship Wrestling, you know, and, and was subsequently be gone. But, yeah, they, they uh, he was able, and, and this, you know, like you said, this angle being the thing that got him over most as much as he would get over in ACW. So they set up the steel cage for the semi-main event of the evening, and we are getting ready for Jimmy Snuka versus Tommy Dreamer. First question is, for a company full of young talent, what was it like having Snuka in the locker room? Well, I'd, I'd known Jimmy for years, right? I always got along great with Jimmy. You know, and he, and he still wielded some pretty strong name value at that time. You know, his, his, you know many of his pro, uh, uh, programs in wrestling from earlier were, were you know, legendary. Tommy was a huge huge Jimmy Snuka fan. And, you know, as most kids coming up into the business were. You know, having Jimmy there, much like having Funk there, was valuable, especially to a young kid like Tommy Dreamer, right? Because he's got to get in the ring. He's got to learn those aspects. He's got, you know, there, there, there's things to learn timing-wise, uh, when to speed it up, slow it down. And the only way to really truly learn that is to be in the ring with a guy that knows how to do it. And Jimmy knew how to do it in the ring. This may have been the only time I ever seen Snook as a heel. Why do you think Paul decided to go the heel route with him instead of stay with the whole mainstay fan favorite thing? Well, at this point, he's starting to get a little bit older, right? And Paul, in his head, clearly had a vision of where he was taking ECW. He needed Tommy as a babyface. You know, uh, uh, Tommy Tommy is a babyface in real life. I mean, he's the, uh, a dour but good guy. He was having trouble getting over. You know, the, the, working with Jimmy would, would start pushing him up a little bit, but it wouldn't be until the Raven angle, all right, the, the Sandman angle rather, that that would put him on the map, and then the Raven angle got him over in gangbusters. So it was a slow build. And I remember in the early days, Tommy always asked like, how to get over the babyface and you know, that, I've often talked about this. Getting over as a babyface is much harder than getting over as a heel, right? It's easier to make somebody hate you than it is to make them love and respect you. So Tommy was, at that age, still wearing the, the, the sequence suspenders and things. And, you know, so he was, the Tommy Dreamer that everybody knows uh, was a, uh, a work in progress at that point. And working with Jimmy Snuka as a heel because, you know, he again, he's getting older. And we need Tommy as a babyface, and him over the babyface. So you know, just where things, where the cards laid. So the main event is a four-on-four Ultimate Jeopardy cage match, which is basically a rip-off of War Games with a twist. 
This match is full of stipulations that result in consequences. If Shane is pinned, he loses his hair. If Public Enemy are pinned, they lose the tag titles and have to leave forever. If Taz and Kevin Sullivan are pinned, they have to split up their team forever. If Road Warrior Hawk gets pinned, he can never use the name Road Warrior again. If Funk gets pinned, he loses the ECW World title. And if Mr. Hughes gets pinned, his manager Jason is locked in a cage with Hawk, Taz, Sullivan, and Funk. This is on the line between creative and silly. Was there ever a conversation about you losing your hair? No. Uh, this magnificent cloth? Are you kidding me? <laughs> it's no. They, they, I mean, this was a this was a great way for us to make a belt switch, um, and all the rest of it is fluff and stuff, right? You know, run the risk that big mouth Shane Douglas could lose his hair. Who wouldn't like to see him bald? On paper, you can see the fans. Even as you were saying it. You know, of, of the one thing that stuck out there to me was breaking Kevin and Taz up, right? Because Paul knew, I think, at that point, not exactly where he was going to go with Taz specifically, but, you know, knew that they, he wasn't going to keep in a tag team situation. So that, like, sort of jumps out. But, you know, the one thing that always amazes me about Paul's booking is how he can almost read the minds of the fans and think how the fans are going to look at this. Because right? we, we know that our fans were smart smart in the wrestling vernacular and that they would dissect it and break it down. And when you start to do that, when you get them thinking that way, you can swerve them pretty easily because you put something out there that looks pretty overt and pretty obvious, right? Again, when you read down that list of things, the two things that jump out at me are breaking Taz up and, and Kevin Sullivan and Jason getting locked in the cage with those guys. Those look like, okay, gimmies, right? You're going to get one of those. Nobody thinks that a belt, uh, you know, a heavyweight belt, which was what it was at that time, is going to switch hands in a match like this. Uh, you know, I don't think anybody really thought, oh, you know, too much about Shane Douglas losing his hair. But what it did was by the the way we had the finish of the match and having it in that kind of a match, it doesn't hurt Terry Funk. And so it, it keeps him fresh and alive enough to be able to, bring him back and feud against the franchise as he's the champion and the babyface chasing the belt. So it's brilliant booking. It really is. But it is that simple. Um, you know, sometimes like you look at people thinking about booking, as we often see today, right, it's quantum physics and we have to reinvent the wheel and all of those sorts of things. No, there's just basic rules that you'd have to adhere to. And when you look at that one, like, again, just from, and maybe it's because I've been in wrestling for 40 years, but when I look at that card, at that lineup in that match, it doesn't seem to me that a belt is going to change hands, ergo the swerve, that Shane Douglas is going to get shaved bald in a little place like Valley Forge, but those other things sort of jump out. So now that we take it to a finish, and it, it achieves all those same things at the same time. All right, with a little help here from Mr. Hughes and a plastic bag, you would pin ECW champion Terry Funk. This would be the second time you would win the ECW championship, but the first time you win it as the franchise. You got a new gimmick, a new valet, a new bodyguard, a new attitude, and a brand new ECW championship. You had to be on top of the world right here, right? Well, I was, but it was also daunting. Because, you know, the character had not yet been fleshed out. The only direction Paul Heyman had given me about that character up to that point was, you're the captain of the football team who steals everybody, everybody's girlfriend and fucks her. You know, so I had an idea of what he wanted for the character. But there were also some other goofy things that he wanted. Like, he wanted me to walk to the ring each night wearing uh, a different jersey. Like, he was friends with Lawrence Taylor. So he wanted me one night to wear Lawrence Taylor's jersey and 
Dan Marino's jersey and, you know, Lemieux and Yager's jerseys and all the rest of it. And I said to him, wait a second, as a baby face, that would be great. But as a heel, wouldn't the franchise expect Dan Marino to wear his jersey? And and that was where, like, the light bulb went on in my head where I, I could start to bring all these different ideas of, you know, you don't want to just be a growling, snarling bad guy, right? What You know, that those are the ones that become the stereotypes of wrestling. I wanted to be able to, to provide a character that could rationalize no matter how despicable a thing he did that Shane Douglas the franchise would be able to rationalize it to sit down with you at a kitchen table and say well here's why I did this despicable thing and make it make perfect sense at least in that conversation and and so that's where it started so that night getting the belt you know what you know when you're a kid and you first get a belt you think oh this is great I'm a champion but then when you're a businessman and you've been around the business for a couple of years you realize that getting that belt means you're on the spot like you either draw and help the guys make a living or you don't and you don't hold it very long and you may not get it again. So it takes on a whole different air of, of professionalism, right? You've got to deliver the goods. And, you know, so here I am with a character that's ill-defined, poorly defined at that point, uh, And I'm given these great assets of Curtis Hughes and, and, and Sherry Martell. And now how do we all pull this together? There's, to my knowledge, there's only one picture of the three of us together that I'm aware of. It's the three of us sitting in a dressing room with the uh, the lights around the mirror. Uh, Curtis is off to my right shoulder, beyond my right shoulder, and Jerry's on the left, I think, leaning against the uh, counter, and I'm holding the belt laughing. That was taken, that was that night after that match in Valley Forge, and the building was pretty much empty because all the rest of the boys had left by then. Yeah, that was the championship celebration, and, and the championship celebration <laughs> segment was very entertaining. You got wrestlers coming up to you to congratulate you, Sandman being one of them, and he offers you a champion's discount on a prostitute for the bargain basement price of $20. I thought it was kind of strange that Sandman was moonlighting as a back alley pimp here. <laughs> well, he, but if you think about it, that's the Sandman, right? The, the Sandman would, uh, would celebrate that doesn't really turn him heel. He's still Sandman. But that's totally in, in, in character with what the Sandman would do. Well, you looked fantastic here. Um, it made me wonder, when in your career do you think you were in the best physical shape? Uh, I was still a little light then, um, probably about 230 uh, at that point, and was still fighting to gain weight uh, and size. Uh, you know, again, in the business being the land of the Giants, right, we talk about the Bruce Brothers, how big those two guys were. You know, so I can't grow any taller at that point. I'm, I'm pretty much stuck with what I got. And so the only way for me to gain would be to gain size. I would say in my uh, when we did the NWA title tournament, like there for the next several years, I was probably in the best shape of my career, weighing in around 250, occasionally higher, a little, a little bit lower, but right around the 250 mark. 253 was my peak in ring weight. So I, I noticed that when I started peaking, you know, exceeding the 250 mark, that it started having an impact on my speed in the ring and my ability to get up off the mat quickly and bounce back fast. So for me, the ideal weight in ring was around 245 to 250. So this event, especially the main event, was a pretty solid super card. What would you say your ultimate takeaway from Ultimate Jeopardy 1994 was? Well, that it started by, by putting me with Curtis and Sherry. I had Sherry before that, uh, but by putting Curtis with me, it's it sort of, you could almost see like the fledglings of, of a triple threat, you know, the, 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 the triple threat that would become the, the Chris uh, Benoit, Bam Bam Bigelow, franchise Francine version. We needed a heel stable. ECW clearly needed a heel stable. To, to be sort of that glue that held it together 
And I think you can see the fledgings in it right there with Curtis when he was still a, a huge guy. With Sherry being that devious manager that was so damn good at the ring. You know, and, and by having someone like Sherry there and Curtis, both of who had pretty pretty big exposure on TV at that point, it sort of brought the champion up to their level instead of the other way around. You know, so they, they, they were giving me the rub from their television uh, histories and careers. Again, I go back to the booking of it. When, I, when you send me the notes and you had said about, you know, that it was bordering on silly in that main event. And then I started going back to, you know, again, like I always talk, when I go back this far in my memory, because what is, what are we, uh, 25 years ago? Uh, uh, you know, Longer. Pretty good, long, pretty, yeah, pretty good stretch back 26 years ago. Yeah, I guess it was, uh, yeah, yeah, that, yeah, 26. The memories are all there. It's going to, you know, brush them off, locate them, and, and be able to access them. But when I look at that card, especially the main event. First of all, on the cards, you can see a slow, steady build to this coming main event. And the main event itself, like you point out, contends from a certain perspective on being silly. But then when you look at the booking of it, how it was laid out and where Paul was taking that match, it's brilliant booking. Because again, I think the fans are clearly looking for one of those two previous finishes that I spoke about. I don't think there were many people in the building expecting me to get shaved bald. And I don't think anybody in the building was thinking Terry Funk was going to lose the belt in a match like that in Valley Forge. You know, honestly, I think that if I would have not known the outcome of this, I would have thought that Road Warrior Hawk was going to win because I thought for sure there's no way he was going to lose the Road Warrior name. That was like the most unbelievable of all of them, even more so than your hair. Yeah, right, right. I mean, those are those are things that you really can't see coming. But, you know, again, with the way Paul would swerve, so the fans start to outguess themselves, right? Because like you just said, that would have been what you expected. And so, you know, you'd, you'd probably come to the conclusion of, well, that's what I expect, so it must not be that. Paul's going to be something else. And, you know, when you keep the fans guessing, you know, brilliant booking is not easy, but it's not rocket science. You know, again, if you adhere to those basic rules of knowing where your fans expect to go, and it's not just going the opposite. That, that's, that's the lazy way out. But Paul looked at that. You could see, like, how his brain works in that match because the – one of the least likely things is what you're going to get uh, because it's so implausible of a belt change in a, in a secondary site, not the ECW arena in a match thrown together with all these disparate personalities and, and ring skills, you know, so you obviously start looking at the other things, not the most likely thing or, or in hindsight, you know, court, you know, Monday morning quarterbacking in the bank. Oh, it's so obvious Terry's going to lose the belt. Look at it from beforehand going into that. seems pretty unlikely that the champion would lose Again, in a secondary city that, that we didn't run very, if I, I, to my knowledge, we only ran that one time. So you start looking at the other options. It's brilliant booking from Paul. All right, well, that about puts the bow right on it for uh, Ultimate Jeopardy 1994. And it brings me to my next thing that I wanted to talk to you about, which was SummerSlam that took place recently. And I'm not going to make you talk about all these matches because, you know, but it, it's just pointless. You didn't watch it anyway. But you may have seen some go. clips of the three matches that I want to talk about briefly. Seth Rollins defeated Dominic Mysterio. Did you see any of Dominic's debut match i did not see it i, I read the sum summary of the match though it was uh it was pretty decent i mean he did he did really good uh i thought that he did really good for it being his first time uh, you could tell he was nervous but i think that he overcame that but uh it was it was better than i guess what has been going on with seth well you know with mysterio ray his dad obviously i i, I don't think ray would allow him to be exposed if he didn't think he was ready 
Um, that's the first thing. Second thing is the nerves. I, I think that's perfect for that angle. Plays right into it, right? He's, he's not a veteran. He's not a seasoned wrestler. So you would be nervous stepping into the ring, you know, with, with a champion, a former champion, you know, somebody, you know, supposedly <laughs> ripped your dad's eyeball out, which I think is the silliest fuck. Um, <laughs> again, the fact that they're trying to put heat on a heel, look, if you don't have heels that have heat and you don't have clearly defined heels, which I think is a huge problem in the business right now where the baby faces in many respects are more heelish than the heels are, uh, I like the effort that they're at least stepping in the direction to do that. Well, another match I wanted to talk to you about was Drew McIntyre versus Randy Orton. And mm -hmm. I, I know a lot of people thought that Randy Orton was going to win the title here. And, you know, someone like me, I didn't think Randy was going to win the title, but I thought for sure there was going to be a reason why he lost that wasn't just a clean victory. But we've seen Drew McIntyre almost pull off a Bret Hart-style victory with, uh, you know, with a, a roll-up. Kind of a shocker. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, you know, again, you can see the fans outguessing themselves, right? It's, I thought this was well-booked, build-up to it with Randy, you know, kicking everybody in the head and, you know, punting them in the head, as they would call it. You know, they, you could see where this was going. And, and with the outcome being something like a wrestling move, wow, go figure. You know, somebody actually pulls out a wrestling move to win a match, uh, not a backflip or hitting somebody over the head with a weapon. You know, so, again, I like this. You know, I didn't see the video footage of it, but I, I read the summary of it, you know, and, and I saw the picture of the backslide. It looked, looked crisp, you know, and in doing that, you, it, it's perfect buildup. You know, you've been putting all this heat on the heel. You can see all the heat that they're putting on the heel and, uh, you know, then, you know, going in and putting the champion over clean. So it should be done. When, when you have belts involved and you keep going to these clusterfuck dusty finishes, that kills the belt. It takes a little bit of shine off the belt each time it's done. If it's done once every blue moon, then then it's like, you know, there's heat that comes off. But when you keep on doing it and you get to the point where you go, oh, I can't lose clean. You've know, you got to do something fucked up. And, well, then that doesn't put the, the new champion over. You know, if you're going to drop the belt and have to do it by getting a satellite falling out of the sky to hit you on the head, well, then the, you didn't really lose, you, you know, sort of an act of God. You know, so I love the idea. Of, of putting the champion, the world champion, over clean on such an established heel as Randy Orton. There's no crime in, in, in losing to a champion, right? And, and there's no shine taking off Randy Orton by losing to a champion, uh, especially somebody like Drew McIntyre, who we all said and, and agree that, you know, sort of got screwed in this whole WrestleMania fuck-up thing with this pandemic bullshit. But, you know, now in the process, he's now defeated Randy Orton, had a lot of momentum, was able to do it with a wrestling hold. Uh, as opposed to, you know, the big guy stuff that you'd expect to get. So I, I, I loved it. I, I thought it was uh, well done and, and well uh, thought out and well executed from what I read. I, again, I haven't seen the video footage of it. Great way to build legitimacy around your champion. I think that uh, that was a good move as well. Next up, and the Amen. final match of the night, was the Fiend Bray Wyatt getting his victory over Braun Strowman to actually take the title. Um, but then... We seen Roman Reigns come back, which kind of overshadowed mm -hmm. Bray Wyatt's victory. He attacked Bray Wyatt. He attacked Braun Strowman. A lot of people were saying, oh, you know, Roman, he, he heel turned. He finally heel turned. And I was thinking, no, this is not a heel turn because he's got history with Braun and the Fiend's not really a face. So he really kind of just beat up two heels. 
And but that was not the case on SmackDown. We seen SmackDown end this week with Roman Reigns sitting on a couch. He says, you know, he's going to show up at Payback. He's going to beat up Bray Wyatt. He's going to beat up Braun Strowman, and he's going to get back his all uh, his Universal Title. And then he says that is not a prediction. That is a spoiler. And then the camera pans back, and apparently Roman Reigns is now a Paul Heyman guy. Hmm. Interesting. It is interesting. Interesting twist, right? Very, very interesting. It makes me wonder what it's going to be like uh, with uh, Roman going into the future. I, I think it could be really exciting, actually. You think Paul had his fingerprints on this? I would say so. Yeah, it, it, it sounds to me very much like Paul booking. But again, it's the kind of stuff that I think WWE desperately needs right now. They need heels of heat, and they're working on that. They they need something different as opposed to being able to say in the first five seconds as soon as somebody walks through a curtain after watching social media for the week, I know who's going to win this match. You know, it, it ain't hard. You know, again, it goes back to those long held traditions like Bill Watts, rocket science, black hat, white hat, that's wrestling. It really does get that simple. Although it's obviously not simple to conceive because if it were, then everybody would be doing it. It takes somebody that understands those nuances and, you know, with Roman Reigns returning right after having been out for how long, you know, there's this great, great big question mark that inherently comes with that. Now, how can you best incorporate that inherent question mark? You know, come out and make him the baby face again and have him be sort of half-assed over, or you can keep him in that gray area. Paul loves the gray area, by the way. That's why I asked the question if you think is that Paul's fingerprints on it, because Paul loved to work in that gray area, you know, the, the tweener area. Um, so, you know, it, it'll keep the fans guessing and keep them tuning in. One thing I wanted to mention about this uh, or about the same weekend that we're talking about right now is the night before was NXT TakeOver XXX and uh, also known as 30. So NXT TakeOver 30, we seen Pat McAfee take on Adam Cole, and I was not expecting Pat McAfee to impress me whatsoever. I have not been the biggest Pat McAfee fan, but man... He blew my mind. He did so well in that match with Adam Cole. It was absolutely unbelievable. Did you get a chance to see any of that? The only thing I saw online and trying to research was him uh, doing the um, uh, the flip off the top rope and landing. And to me, like I don't give a lot of like, not that it's not impressive, but it seems to me everybody in the card can do that. So. I, you know, I'd have to watch the match to get, but I've seen a lot of the re- reviews on it. Well, that wasn't uh, necessarily I, I, the I, impressive I, part. I, when he did the moonsault off the top rope and landed on his feet, and then he ran back to the top rope and did a vertical leap and landed on the top rope and hit a perfect superplex, that was the impressive part. So why was uh, Cole sitting there? Well, they had just fought off of, uh, he had just fought Pat McAfee off of the top rope. Matt or Pat McAfee does the moonsault, lands on his feet. Adam Cole's still sitting on the top rope, and he's shocked that Pat McAfee did you know did this flip and landed on his feet. And while he's being shocked, Pat McAfee's already back in his face before he can even stand up. It looked really great. I mean, it was really you great. Watch it. You have to watch it and see. But you know, uh, I hope that they can get continue to get this guy over, right, Pat McAfee, because... You know, you have a guy with the NFL background that's going to obviously be the – like, you remember how they, uh, Jim Ross used to always talk about uh, uh, Brian Pillman's NFL career. Right. Um, so it, 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 it certainly bleeds in legitimacy as an athlete. 
and again, let's face it, you know, we've talked about earlier and we've talked pretty much every week about how uh, the NXT AEW feud has sort of been, you know, in a shoebox. You know, it's they need to do something to grow outside of that. And if they can pull some of the NFL fans because somebody like McAfee's involved, uh, they need to do that. They, they need to grow that audience. And, and, and McAfee could be an, an ingredient to that. Uh, I'd be curious as to who it is that, that's, you know, training him, that's teaching him, you know, because hopefully he'll learn the psychology of it. Because, again, the moves, they're a dime a dozen anymore. You know, it's uh, uh, it's and how you put those moves together that makes the brilliance. You go back and look at a Steamboat Flare match, right, as incredible as they were. Look at Randy uh, Savage and, and, and Steamboat from WrestleMania three. You know, incredible match, nothing that you've never seen before but just incredible in the way they put it together and the flow of the match and the story that they told with that match. We need to see story being told in matches now. That's long gone lost art. Another thing that we've seen on this exact same show was Keith Lee, who just won the title. I mean, he just won the belt, and they took the belt off of him. Karrion Cross goes over, defeats Keith Lee, and takes the NXT championship um, the next night we see Keith Lee is, well, not the next night, uh, the, the next night was SummerSlam. And then on Monday night, Keith Lee shows up and he has new ring music. He has a new outfit. I guess, uh, I guess Vince said that he was too fat and he had to put a shirt on. And then they gave him these weird, like boxing trunks that kind of looked like a skirt. It was, it was kind of very strange. He still did amazing. And, uh, you know, he, he got to work with Randy Orton. So that was really cool, but man, they really changed him up, bringing him to the main roster. And it was, uh, it was not a really great change up. Yeah. You know, to me, if you're going to do a change up, build a story out of it, you know, give some explanation, not just here. I lose tonight. And a couple of days later, I'm going to be back with a different look. And, you know, but, but that's, it's, it's time wasted. You know, every second now, unfortunately now with with uh raw and smackdown being the length they are it it, it always looks to me when i the few times that i do watch it that they're squishing stuff into it trying to fill it up as opposed to painstakingly having to cut things they don't want out because it's just too much action when done properly and i remember again resorting back to ecw when i was doing the commentating with joey after the elbow surgery i would watch paul just literally painstakingly go through frame by frame and have because we had to cut it down to 46 minutes and it's 42 now per hour of content. But instead of making it, you know, let's shove all this stuff in to try to fill it up. Why not flesh some of this stuff out? Like give an explanation as to why Keith Lee now has a new look and you know, what's behind this and you know, what was the genesis of it and the purpose of it and where are we going with it? What's the reason? It's not just wham, bam, thank you, ma'am tonight, two days from now, different character, different look. Take us on the journey with that. You know, let, let, let the fans see behind the curtain as to what went into that, what created that, what was the genesis of it. And fill that time up with a little more explanation as opposed to here's Joe Blow walking down the backstage area talking to some pretty girl in the back, you know, which seems to me like every time I watch pictures of times, a handful of times that I'm watching, seems to me I'm getting a lot more of that than I really care to, and that's boring television. So they uh, ran into some bad luck because right after Karrion Cross wins the title, he is diagnosed with a separated shoulder, and he has to give up the NXT championship. So there is no NXT champion now. I bet you they kind of wish they would have 
left it on Keith Lee. But on the next episode of NXT, we are going to see Adam Cole versus Finn Balor versus Johnny Gargano versus Tommaso Ciampa, which a lot of people are calling the Mount Rushmore of NXT face off for the NXT championship. Who do you think they're going to put the belt on? Good question. My question back to, uh, to Karrion Cross: uh, Did the injury happen in the match? Yeah. Okay, because uh, that was sort of unclear. I'd read about that online. It was sort of unclear as it, it, I, I assumed it happened in the match, but none of the, the outlets that I read had mentioned that, so I wasn't sure if it was something they were building into a storyline or you know, was it a real injury or you know honestly i think i'm just assuming as well i don't know if i've read that for a fact that it happened in the match i was just assuming that it did yeah yeah because that that part of it aspects unclear and i I think there's always at least in my brain there's always the propensity to look for the the uh aha you know if it's booked you know it could be a nice little twist I, i hope for cross's sake that it is that you know it's not a serious injury and that it's it's maybe a, a, a nagging thing that he needs a little bit of time off from, but uh, you know, you don't, you know, you don't want to see anybody get hurt or injured, and that necessitates time off because I don't care who you are, you, you're never coming back 100 percent from any kind of injury. There's always some deficit. You know, you might get back to 99 percent, unlikely, but you know, you may get back, but you're never getting back to 100 percent. So every time I hear an athlete in any sport come, I'm 100 percent, I'm ready to come back bullshit you know it's uh it just doesn't work that way anytime you let's say you tear something right you have scar tissue build up in there uh uh you, you may get back to pressing the same thing you used to press and be able to do the same moves you could do but you ain't 100 percent. so that, that that's just my tangent on uh you know just trying to look into the injury and hoping for cross to say that it is a working part of the storyline i feel like finn balor is going to win the belt well i mean he's he's positioned to right um had been to the main roster and, and back down to NXT and you know from from the outside looking in like it's like I do it doesn't seem like they've capitalized on his being back there like they should have or they they could have you know so you know Balor be of those four probably the most well positioned to be but again back to, to the Paul booking you know if that's what the fans think then you know will they, will they swerve them All right, so next week we are going to have an interesting show because we're going to be talking about something that you were not a part of by choice. That was your choice. I wish you wouldn't have made that choice. It would have made ECW, WWE a lot better. But you decided that you didn't want to be a part of it, so you weren't. But I'm sure you have opinions on it because we're going to talk about vampire wrestlers and zombie wrestlers and the misuse of ECW characters and Paul Heyman getting fired and the big show being the champion and... Man, it's going to be great. I'm sure you're excited. Uh, An an opinion on WWE's uh, ECW? Uh, I I don't know if I have that or not. Well, you're going to watch some episodes between now and then because we are going to be talking about it. I'm doing, I don't really have to do a whole lot of research, but I'm doing it anyway because I actually watched every single episode of ECW WWE when it was on TV, whether it was horrible or great. And there were, there were good things in there. I'm not going to say that it was all bad. It was not all bad. They just made some really bad decisions like uh, Vince McMahon becoming the ECW world champion, which I'm sure made you scream i don't want to even talk about it right now i don't want your response to that right now i want it next week but we're going to talk about all of that in our episode next week about ecw wwe
Yeah, I think I, I think I'll have some surprising comments for the fans next week. Well, I'm excited. I can't wait to hear what you thought about it. And most importantly, I can't wait wait to hear how you were like, uh, you know what? I don't want a bunch of money in TV time. Screw this. I'm not going back to ECW if it's owned by Vince McMahon. I can't wait to hear that story. Oh, there, there's there's a lot, lot of ins and outs to it and a lot of intrigue as always. All right, sir. Well, I, I would like to uh, tell all of our fans to make sure you follow us on Facebook. Make sure you follow us on Twitter. Make sure you follow us on Instagram. Make sure you join the Facebook franchisee group. It is out there. You can be a part of it and share all of your franchise pictures and stories and anything that you want, memories and videos and everything right there in the franchisee group. So make sure you do all that. And you know what? I'm going to give you a little bit of homework. I want everyone listening to this show to turn Turn someone else on to this show. Uh, I, I want you to, to post it on their page or send them a link or just call them and say, hey, have you listened to Franchise with Shane Douglas? We are trying to grow this audience and we need your help. Now, with that being said, there's only one thing left for you to do, Mr. Douglas, and that is take us home. Hey, next week right here on Franchise, hear the franchise and his opinion on WWE's ECW. Make sure you tune in because it's going to be a barnstormer. Tune in next week and hear all the lowdowns or get your ass franchised. <laughs> I said all along that I would be world heavyweight champion of ECW. And as prophetically as it was, it comes true. The old man, Terry Funk, falls and it feels great <laughs> to be. It's a privilege. I'd just like to shake your hand and congratulate you. I never doubt you. are the greatest champion of all times. I knew you could do it. You know and something? I always knew you were a man of good taste. Thank you. I, I never doubted you for one minute. You're the greatest champion. I just saw how you outrun Terry Funk. Hey, man, I just can't believe it. Congratulations again, man. You're the Thank greatest you. of all time. Yeah, yeah, Thank yeah. you very Thank much. Thank you very much. <laughs> yes, sir, baby. You are a bad man. <laughs> Not as bad as you, but on top of the heat, nonetheless. You are bad. You are bad. You know, maybe I am bad. Yeah. <laughs> You're right. Right, right, right. ECW right. heavyweight champion. Exactly. Franchise. Called myself that from the start and it was for a reason because I was number one and on top and here come more accolades yes sir bring out to the ring with you yes if you ever need another woman I'll give you a champion's discount boy I'm right down the hall $20 for you anytime 20 buddy. bucks <laughs> it's a bargain basement price <laughs> Sherry do we have 20 bucks on okay, us okay. come on 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 come the player worked perfectly, Johnny. Perfectly. I just see Johnny in there in that match. Yo, he hit you Terry guys. Funk in the head. Who won? Who won? Who beat that? Who beat that? Who beat that? And look at this belt, Johnny. This belt is just almost nice like ours. Oh, it's beautiful. Look at how nice it is. Well, we just come in to hey, congratulate you. Thank you very much, guys. You and did your job. Yes, sir. Beautiful. The player worked beautiful. And you look good too, babe. And very steady. I'm telling you. And <laughs> Peace! We're out of here! Hey, 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 guys, wait a second. We're forgetting one belt there. We're forgetting one there. Oh, sorry, Mr. Franchise. Thank you, guys. Okay. They almost look alive. They sure do. No, no, 
No hassle, no hassle. <laughs> Isn't that beautiful, Sherry? Look at yeah, that. Hey. Oh, Mr. Gordon. Welcome Mr. to the party. Gordon. Hey, Todd. Hey, Todd. Look at this gold. Look at the diamonds. Look at the gold. <laughs> That's a nice tie, by the way. Shane, uh, as, as mandated by the NWA, it's my job to... Uh, Spit it out. My, my job to congratulate you as being NWA. Yay! Come on, come on, come you know on. Something, Congratulations. <laughs> you know something, Todd? I told you just about five months ago. Call me a prognosticator. Tell me I got a crystal ball. But I told you five months ago <laughs> that I would be world heavyweight champion. <laughs> and by the way, <laughs> I really enjoy you coming out here as the head of the NWA. But you know something, Todd? Just like I'm going to tell you, and just like I'm going to tell all those people out there, <laughs> I am your heavyweight champion. And you don't know how good that makes me feel to tell you that. And to tell all of you scumbags out there that you don't have to like it, but you certainly have got to appreciate it. <laughs> Shane, I congratulate you. That was my job. The NWA told me I had to congratulate you. You're congratulating. But we'll get sure your opponents are also lining up right now to come after this belt. And they're lining up for you, Shane Douglas. Good. Send them on. The bigger the better. Send them on. That's right. Just bring them down. You know, Shane Douglas. Come on. Come Shane on. Douglas has never dodged anybody. And all I can say is, Jason. I want to thank you because just like when I was in high school, Sherry, hold this for a second. Okay. When I was back and I saw my receiver in the end zone long and I fired the pass 60 yards through the air, boom, touchdown, count it for six points. I needed somebody in front of me. I needed the enforcer. I needed somebody to get down in that three-point stance and I needed him to knock Lawrence Taylor on his ass. Yeah. And this is the man right here. You know something, brother? I saw you throwing bodies from one side of that ring to the other side out there, and it made me proud because I knew that with the plan that we had, it couldn't fail. The gold is where it rightfully belongs in the beautiful woman's arms around the franchise's waist. And just like yeah. so many other champions from Pittsburgh, a new dynasty begins. Yeah, 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 yes, 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 yes. You got it, you got it, you got it, baby. Yeah.
This has been a product of Superior Radio Network. At the law office of Stephen New, we take a team approach to your case. Our staff and paralegals are excellent and will assist you through every step of your case. We employ world-class experts to make sure that your case is developed to its maximum value. When you seek legal counsel, choose Stephen New and his team. They'll work together to achieve the best results for your case and support you every step of the way. Our clients, why we do what we do at the Law Office of Stephen New.